0: This is Peter Anderson from BibleMoneyMatters.com. And now, your host, Eric Rosenberg. He'll balance your checkbook, he'll tell you where to invest, and he'll even DJ your wedding. This is the Personal Profitability Podcast.
1: You're listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast, where you'll learn how to earn income, live better, and put your money to work for you. Here's your guide on your path to personal profitability. Eric Rosenberg.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Personal Profitability Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here with me. For I think this episode makes it a dozen, not quite a baker's dozen yet. Um, but I'm so so excited again as always to have you back. My name is Eric Rosenberg, your your trusty and very good-looking host. And today I have a, a special guest for you. Uh, someone who you you might guess where I met them, like like some other guests. I, I met him at FinCon, but this guest I met a little differently than the others. We didn't meet at a networking session. We actually met at a bar at about three in the morning. Uh, one night in New Orleans at the last FinCon. And it was because my wife was up at the bar grabbing us another round of drinks and saw, saw this, uh, this bald guy with a, um, FinCon badge on. It's like, oh, you look like you're at the same conference I'm at. And, and we've been, uh, we've been buddies since. So I'm very excited to introduce Lee Huffman, who is here with me, with us. So say, say hello. Hi, Eric. It's
1: great to be here and it's great to be here with all your listeners.
0: So a little background on Lee before we dive in. He is a banker by trade. That is his full-time day job. He lives in the Southern California area. He's, um, he's, he's an executive at the bank he works at. It's a regional bank. And he, I, he got into the FinCon world because he has a site called Bald Finances. You might guess the name comes a little bit from his hairstyle. <laughs> he has other sites as well, um, baldthoughts.com and, um, and, and several others that we'll talk about as we go. But before we get started, as always, personal finance should be fun, so we're going to have a beer. If you are not in the car and not at a job that would prevent that, um, please, this is your moment to hit pause, head to the fridge, grab a beer. If you're gluten-free, you could grab a wine. Um, I guess you'd have a scotch too. Those are pretty good. I don't judge. So um, here's your, your pause moment. Okay, welcome back. I hope you got something good and cold. Um, I here have a Hopworks IPA. I actually live just a few blocks from the Hopworks brewery here in Portland. It's an all-organic brewery. If we call it Hub, it's a uh, it's a good place to ride your bike and grab a beer. What do you have on your
1: end, Lee? I'm actually drinking a Heineken. Uh, when growing up, I really didn't like that taste too much, but after going to, to Germany and, and um, picking up an S550 and driving around Europe, we actually stopped off at the Heineken factory and and I have a new uh, affection for, for, for Heineken after seeing how they're made. I've actually been, uh, a few years ago, I, my, one of my
0: first travel hacks ever. I flew out on a trip to London, Paris, and Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, nice. I went to the old Heineken factory tour in, in the city center. And it was a
1: really great time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they, they, put a, they put a lot of effort into that that tour. And it's it, it really awesome to, to go visit for yourself. And my favorite part, listeners, if you ever
0: get there, there's a ride that you can do in the tour where you are the ingredients being made into a beer, and it's a fully interactive experience as much as they can do without boiling you. So it's a, uh, it was really neat. <laughs> and uh, I, I always think of when I think of Heineken, I think of like Las Vegas nightclubs and European nightclubs because whenever I go out to a nightclub with European music, I wear European clothes and feel like I should drink European drinks. So that's that's what I always get when I'm at a, at a Boom, 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 boom—kind of nightclub. I'm a Heineken guy, so good choice. <laughs> anyway, so so we're gonna we're gonna dive into the meat now. So Lee is one of the foremost experts on travel hacking that I know, and as as you guys who've listened before know, I've done a very in depth post on travel hacking. So we're gonna end up there and talk a little bit about travel hacking. But to start, Lee, can you share a bit about your career background, how you ended up in banking, and how you got to where you are today.
1: Sure. Even though I work for a bank, I mean, I've never really considered myself a quote unquote banker. I'm more of a, to me, I'm more of like a business person that's always looking to find better ways of doing whatever's being done and trying to find ways to drop, drop income down to the bottom line, whether that's saving money or increasing revenue. So I think it kind of fits in the overall perspective of what what we're doing here on the websites, as well as what I'm doing with my career. I actually started working for my dad's law firm when I was 14 years old doing, doing accounting. So that's uh, you know another exciting career on the accounting side there, but but <laughs> did you did you decide after uh, after a high school career in accounting to not do that for your for your adult career? Yeah, yeah, I actually took a couple accounting classes in in, uh, in high school, and I did so well in the first class that I, I took it again the second time, and <laughs> and well, it was the advanced course the second okay. time, but uh, I did so well that the teacher never even bothered me. Uh, and I would basically would sleep in class and I was almost like a, like a, like a tutor for everybody else. So they would wake me up and ask me a question. I'd show them how to do whatever T T transaction they're trying to do and <laughs> balancing their debits and credits. And then I go back to sleep. And uh, because I, I basically had almost a hundred percent score in the class all the time that the teacher never even bothered me. So that was pretty awesome. But uh, when, during college, I, I took a, a um, information services class or information systems class, and I learned Excel for the first time. And uh, this is you know, obviously way back, way back in the day, probably in 1994, when uh, when uh, computers weren't as as prevalent as they are today. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad was a bankruptcy attorney, and uh, you know he was working on on a case for a client and had some documents that were due at the courthouse on Monday. And uh, wouldn't you know, it, the people that worked at the company that he was representing, they went home. It was five o'clock. They said, "You yep, know, see you later. I'm out of here." And you know he was kind of freaking out because he needed some documents done, and so I'm like, oh, I you know I just took this accounting, cl- I just took the you know a couple accounting classes and a Excel class, I can probably do whatever you need to whatever you need done. <laughs> and uh, I basically replicated the the format um, to basically show how clients needed to to repay their debts over the course of a like a five year period. In uh, the the bankruptcy world, it's known as a plan re reor- a plan to reorganization and a disclosure statement. And uh, so I basically spent the weekend doing that. And that was kind of like my first business was born. Uh, I started working with my dad's bankruptcy clients. And then I ended up going out and getting a bunch of clients on my own as well. And, uh, and that, that whole process evolved into doing business plans for companies looking for debt and equity funding. And uh, it, was, it was really interesting times. You know, the, the dot-com crash. I mean, the dot-com crash hadn't happened. So everybody with a, with a wild hair <laughs> up their booty. Uh, I was coming up with all these crazy schemes and ideas of, of how to make money off of uh, off of nothing, and uh, you know things were things were pretty good for a little while, and then uh, obviously the dot com crash happened, and uh, that business dried up uh, considerably. So my partner and I, uh, we split up. He went to go work for the family business, and I went to go work in the financial planning world because I've always been interested in investments, and I, I've always been uh, trying to trying to steer my friends towards spending less and investing more. So I figured, okay, well, I'm already talking about it to my friends all the time. I might as well get paid for it, right? Mm-hmm. And I did that for probably about a year, and I, I, you know, I realized that I was working more hours for that company and making less money uh, than I was when I was working for myself. And uh, you know, I, I grew tired of, of putting in all those hours and not really seeing much, uh, much out of it. Uh, the, the financial services industry you know, basically you need to have like another spouse that's working with you, or you need to have a a pretty good amount of savings in order for you to build up your business and and really be able to make a good income out of it. You, you really need to be in it for, I'd say, you know, three to five years in order to, to really make a substantial income. So there are a lot of washouts like, like me and and a bunch of other people that, that started there. Uh, We just lasted for, you know, a year or, or, or a lot of them even less than that. So uh, so my friend basically recommended that I go work for a bank. And I never really even thought about that, and uh, said, "Okay, let me let me give it a try." And I became a personal banker where I was able to bring a lot of my clients over and still be able to provide all the investment services, but at the same time offer a more well-rounded, uh, you know financial plan for them by being able to help them with loans say if they need a mortgage or home equity line of credit or a credit card as well as their banking needs like uh, you know like a like a checking account savings etc so i look at it as like a, a way to evolve and be able to offer better services for for my clients that i brought over so then how
0: did you go from personal banker to the position you're in today did you just
1: kick a lot of button and press them and like oh we're gonna we're gonna give well, you a fancier title yeah <laughs> well what i did is uh, I started, you know, working in a branch was not for me, you know, I just didn't want to be in that situation, you know, day in and day out. And so I said, okay, what are the two things that make banks the most amount of money? And it's the investment side and it's the business banking side. Mm-hmm. And because uh, business banking generally larger transactions, larger balances. All those uh, fees. lots yeah, of Yeah, a lot of fees. If you've, ever of up, if you've never opened up a business checking account
0: before and you've only ever done personal accounts, when you start, you know, if... I talk a lot about freelancing, starting a freelance business or a side business. It was a wake-up call for a lot of my friends. Like, well, you have to pay all these fees to have a business account, even though I do the exact same stuff
1: as a personal account. Yeah, yeah, it, it is pretty crazy how that works. But, but generally, you know. Um, so what I did is I focused on the business side, and um, I did really well. I was actually uh, at the time I was working for Citibank, and I was uh, the number two business banking officer uh, in the West Coast, and. Um, unfortunately they you know they just there wasn't a career path available for me there, and so I went to Bank of America and uh was basically doing the similar type of thing uh working with clients that are in the two to twenty million dollars in revenue size and they had balances that are a hundred thousand dollars or more and um I think it just really at that point I, I was kind of burnt out on the sales side and so I wasn't putting all my effort in and uh and just some other things that that happened there you know i i had a I had an assistant and they, it's kind of like a revolving door with the number of people that were kind of helping me out and things just didn't work out. And I I was only there for a little bit over a year. And at that time, the economy was improving and I really wanted to get more on the, on the strategic side of banking. And so, um, you know, I I was fielding calls all the time because I, you know, whenever you're on the sales side, uh, recruiters call you constantly because they're always looking for, for good salespeople. And I, you know, every time I get a phone call, oh man, another bank, I really don't, that's not what I want. That's not what I want. And I almost didn't return the phone call to the company I'm working for today. Um, I was like, it's another bank. It's another sales job, I'm sure. And I, you know, I I was like, "Eh, you know what, if you don't try, you you never know. You're never going to know. You're always going to question. And so I I returned the phone call and I gave him a call and uh, started talking to me and they started describing the position that I'm in. It's like, wow, this is fantastic. Uh, You know, the. They have all these different, you know, fancy titles for things and et cetera, but effectively, I'm like a divisional CFO. So I manage all the finances for the for the areas of the bank that I manage, and so uh, and uh, I'm basically like the liaison between the line of business I support and the the uh, the CFO and and the finance team. And uh, I've been doing it now for for the last ten years. I've supported almost every area across the bank. And it's been really fun uh, being at a bank that's the size that we are on a size versus, say, like, a you know, a conglomerate like Chase or, or Wells or Bank of America, because I can do things that actually matter and that actually impact the performance of the bank. You know, if I was over at a Chase or something like that at the position I'm in or even on the sales side where I was before, if you did, like, say, 300 times your goals, which would be just fantastic, right? Um, it just wouldn't even be a blip on the radar. I mean, they're, they're just so big. Drop that, in the bucket. Yeah, you know, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm interacting on a daily basis with the, with the executive I support, you know, I'm one step away from the CFO, uh, you know, those types of things. So I just, I think money's nice, but I think just kind of like the personal fulfillment of knowing that, that you're making a difference really kind of uh, hit home for me. And that's, that's why I've been there for the last 10 years.
0: Oh, that's great. You know, I, uh, I, I can definitely feel that you like to make a difference with your job. I've had actually my first job at a school was at a bank. And um, it lasted only about six months. I was on the the retail branch side, and that was um it was definitely not for me it was it was more the hours it was it was the culture it wasn't the bank I actually really enjoyed the the banking part working with clients, helping them with all their needs. that was my favorite part of it, which is what led to me starting my my first finance blog was was that experience so the personal nice. finance part I loved, but the seven to seven
1: was not fun. <laughs> Oh wow! I mean, you got lucky with the seven to seven. I um, I would have actually enjoyed those hours because I think you know I I just needed more hours to be able to get everything done uh, when I first started in banking. Uh, you know the work the bank I was working at CalFed, which has now been bought uh, by Citibank a long time ago. Um, when I was started there, I needed more hours to call a lot of my clients to be able to to do a lot of things to be able to help transition them over to the to the bank and. Um, you know, they made a big deal. Well, okay. We're going to do a calling night this one, you know, on Tuesday. So, okay, great. Um, you know, let's, let's do it. And it was five 45. They're like, okay, um, everybody wrap it up. You know, the bank closed at five. And so we spent about 45 minutes phone calling. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just used to calling until like nine o'clock at night when I was working for the financial planning company. And they're like, Nope, sorry. We only have a little, limited amount of uh, overtime and uh, you know, f- 45 minutes. That's about all we can offer you. Oh, go, yeah. okay. And so I w- I went out into the um, went out to the parking lot to my car, and between working for the financial planning company, working for myself all those years, and working for my dad, I'd never had normal hours. I never had a forty hour work week. And so I literally sat in the car, and I didn't know what to do. I did, I was sitting there. Did you I'm go like, home? I I didn't know where to go. I <laughs> I <laughs> I was sitting there. I'm like, okay, um, I have options. I've Things I could do, I, I just I just don't know what to do. It was still happy hour at five forty five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you had fifteen but, more minutes to get a half price beer. <laughs> exactly. But I know it it was just an odd, odd experience. And for, for people like us that are used to working a lot of hours, whether it's for yourself or or for for the man, you know, when you're let out of the office at, at five o'clock and and you're just kind of not knowing what to do, it, it's it's an odd experience. And I, I eventually figured out things to do, obviously, but it was, it was a tough transition for me at first.
0: Yeah, I could see that going, you know, it's a big transition, I think, going either way from being self-employed to having an employer. I'd say that's probably a bigger culture shock. Sure. And the other way too, if you've had a, if you've had the regular hours and then all of a sudden you're out on your own doing something, it's it, either way, you have to totally revamp your whole work lifestyle and how you mm-hmm. do things.
1: It's a major shock. So uh, yeah,
0: but it sounds like you landed on your feet and you, you've done really well. So that's, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Now I actually have a problem problem where I have too many things to, to do and I, not enough hours in the day. So I only sleep probably about five to six hours a night. I wish I could
0: get by on that. I have to, and I actually have a pregnant wife right now, so she, she's more tired than usual, but mm-hmm. we uh, we were generally an eight to nine hour a night sleep household. And oh God. Uh, it's, I, I need that to function at, at full steam. <laughs> I, I need my eight hours. If I sleep less than seven multiple nights in a row, I start to uh, fade out. By the end oh. of every FinCon, I'm I'm running ragged, and I usually come home sick. <laughs> it's it's a bummer. <laughs> Actually, every, well, every big trip I've taken to Europe, I've come home with a nasty cold.
1: It's uh, oh yeah, it's no fun. Well, first of all, congratulations to you and your wife. Uh, we Thank just had you. a baby ourselves, and and you know I know what you're going what you're going to be going through. And, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know yet. I'm going to find out in uh, about six months. Well, the good the good thing for for your wife's energy level the the first trimester is like obviously you got all the baby making going on down <laughs> in her down in her tummy, and uh, you know it it really does sap the energy for the first see like probably half the pregnancy, and then things start to ease down, and uh, then the last couple months before the due date, um, the nesting phase will set in. And she's going to have so much energy because she's going to be a motivated mommy to make sure that the bedroom is all set up for the baby and like everything's all set and done. So that way she doesn't have to worry about anything when she comes home from the hospital. So, so prepare yourself. You're, it's it's going to be a 180 degree difference from where she is today.
0: Well, right now the baby room is set up as a photography and video studio that I'm using for recording things for the website. So that's, I'm about to lose my, my awesome space to to the yeah. baby, but I think that's a worthwhile trade. Yeah, that's a good trade. <laughs> so, so just a couple of minutes ago, you were mentioning how you have all of this, uh, all these other projects to work on when you get home from work and it's impeding on your sleep schedule. How did you get started with your own projects on top of your day job?
1: Well, I think the main thing is I've always tried to say, you know, I want I want multiple streams of income. I want to figure out ways so I can try to retire early. And so um, when I sold my house back in 2006, uh, to buy, be able to buy a house for my parents, um, where they can kind of semi-retire, living in California, house prices were were, were really inflated, and we were lucky actually to, to sell the property when we did. And it wasn't because I knew that house prices were going to fall. It was really more of my dad's health was starting to deteriorate, and so I said, "Hey, you know, let's let's uh, let's sell the house and move you to North Carolina where my brother lives." And um, so we were able to sell it at a really good time. Bought a house for them, and then at the same time. Uh, You know, I was looking around and one of the houses that we contemplated buying for them um, actually was a was a rental and already had a tenant in it. And so, you know, when I was buying their house, I said, well, you know, what? I wonder if I can make it work where I could actually get that house also. And uh, and then that was my first uh, that was my first rental house um, back in uh, back in April of 2006. And so so I bought that house uh, had my parents house. my dad actually passed away a little bit over three years ago, and uh, and then so like the next phase of that property kind of went in place where we turned that property into a into another rental. And um, so, how so many how many rentals have you? I, well, yes, you were telling the story. But how many rentals have you had over the years now? Just just those two at that time, and then I bought another one a little bit over a year ago. And um, you know how it is today. You, you don't have to. You don't really need a realtor in many times. When you're buying a property, because you do all the research yourself on online, whether it's you know, Zillow or, you know, a Redfin or any of those types of uh, types of websites or, or apps on your phone. And um, I was searching and, and somebody gave me a phone call and they they basically said, hey, you know, um, I can help you sh- show houses. And and I was like, OK, whatever. Um, so I signed up with her and, and, and bought my my third rental because I had saved up enough money for a traditional, you know, 20, 30 percent down payment on a on a on a rental um, you know, when you buy a rental, it's not like we're buying a house just for yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you buy a house for yourself, you have FHA loans, you have all these like low down payment programs, or even at the most, like they require you to put a 20% down payment, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to get rid of the, 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 the mortgage insurance premiums. But when you're buying a rental property, in most cases, they want you to have 30% equity. And so I saved up enough money, bought that house. And uh, I really liked the presentation that the the selling agent was doing, you know, he, he presented the house really well, both online and on paper and, and things like that. And the house was really fixed up really nice. And so I started talking to him and uh, my partner um, that went with me uh, to the Heineken factory. Uh, he'd been badgering me for a little while to say, hey, you know, let's 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 do some business together. Let's figure things out. And so I said, OK, things just kind of aligned where uh, I met that real estate agent. My partner was ready to, to kind of do some investing with me. And, um, and we, so we ended up buying our first two flips, uh, that started, we, we closed on them in, in July of, of last year. And, um, you know, basically kind of our, our business was born, so to speak for, for doing uh, flips and, and rentals. And, um, cause with that, you know, you can buy a house that's really cheap. The one we buy we, the one that we turned into a rental, we bought that one in January, bought it for $53,000. We put $17,000 into it. Uh, it appraised for a hundred thousand, so we forced thirty thousand dollars worth of equity, and now it's rented for eight hundred fifty dollars a month. That's great.
0: So, have you for any of your fix ups, have you sold any of them yet to see what you could get in a profit,
1: or are you hanging on to them and, and doing the cash flow thing? We um, we we kind of do both. We we buy some properties that we know that we're going to sell, and then we buy other properties that we know we're, we know we're going to keep for for a rental. Because when you do um, a flip. For a rental or a flip for sale, it's two different types of, um, of rehabs that you're looking at doing. You know, um, if you're doing something that's for for sale, you want it to be a lot prettier mm-hmm. and things like that. If you're doing it for to keep it as a rental, you're not going to be as quite as flashy and you're more focused on sturdiness. You want to make sure that it's going to last a, a several tenants. Or several years, so that way you're not having to constantly um, do more uh, repairs whenever somebody moves out or every couple of years that things things just wear out after a little bit of wear and tear. So, uh, we did sell our first two um, th- earlier this year. Uh, the first one was sold in January and the second one closed in, in March. And unfortunately, we didn't make that much money off them. At least we were positive. We made money on both of them. That's good. Uh, you know, so that's, Did you get that, your uh, what was your hourly pay rate for, for all the work you put in? <laughs> uh, not very much. <laughs> I would say I probably probably the amount of hours I put in probably could have worked I probably could have got paid more working at McDonald's. But <laughs> but a lot of it's you know it's you know as you're familiar you know when you're first building up your business there's a lot of things that um, that I was doing for the project but there's also a lot of things we're just doing for the general business and and strategy of of how we're going to you know make this a, a long term business. So nice. I I didn't really segment out which hours were which, but we, do, my partner and I, we meet once a week for, you know, three or four hours at a time, just talking about strategy and talking about what we're going to do as far as being able to ramp up the business uh, even more. So were there any huge
0: lessons learned on those properties that you will take forward into the next one?
1: Yeah, we, we're actually almost finished with our, with our second two, I mean, our second two. Our second set of, uh, of flip properties that we uh, they'll be closed uh, you know this year in in June and be up for sale hopefully before the end of the month. But the main thing is, it's like anything in real estate or any any other type of business. You make a lot of your money when you buy in, um, you know. And we just we just didn't have enough experience at the time to really know what was the what was the right price to buy those two properties. And uh, you know you have to you have to be diligent and you have to like, take the emotion out of it. And if you, the numbers don't work, even no matter how much you may love that house, if the numbers don't work, they don't work. This is business. This isn't, this isn't romance. And, um, you know, looking back on it, we may or may not have actually done, you know, one or both of those properties if we had known, um, you know, if we used the the same philosophy we use today that we used back then.
0: Well, that's, that's good to know. So when you, for your next two, are you thinking, how are things looking? You think you're going to. Be like those guys on TV making
1: seventy thousand a house and where do you think
0: how, how what's your gut telling
1: you we have a, we have a lower threshold partly because you know we're not buying houses that are you know two three four hundred thousand dollars you know mm-hmm. uh, the, the houses that we buy are generally in like the forty to sixty thousand dollar range where do you find and those? have a what was that where do you find a forty to sixty thousand dollar house uh North Carolina North Carolina that
0: I was saying, I know you live in Southern California. So I I don't, I don't know of anything in in your part of the country that you can find for
1: $40,000. No, you wouldn't be able to buy a a room in somebody's house for $40,000 out here in in Orange County. You might get a a shed in a backyard for 40,000 a year in rent. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, but uh, yeah, so we, you know, we, we're, we're doing well on those. Uh, You know, we're, we have another, we actually have three properties that we're doing right now. There's two of them that we're doing for flips. Um, that we, again, we bought them, you know, in the forty to sixty thousand dollars range, and they're gonna they're gonna sell for anywhere from between like a hundred to one hundred and thirty thousand. Hey, that's a good return on investment. Too. You know, uh, you have, I mean, you have your rehab costs in there mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, I mean, our target is in like the fifteen to twenty thousand dollars range, and uh, you know, as far as the amount of capital we have to put in, it, it's actually a, a pretty good rate of return. That's so, great. when you factor in the financing from a bank and 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 those types of things. So is your business partner out there in North Carolina managing the day to day? No, he's actually here in Southern California too. But uh, I have my brother lives out there, and so if I ever need somebody to 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 go drop in on a property, he's more than willing to do that for me. Um, I just have a i i we've built a a really strong team between our insurance agent, our our realtor, property manager, attorney, our mortgage broker, uh, contractors, things like that. So you know, I think we have a we have a pretty solid team now. And, um, you know, I think that we're going to do well on the, on the two flips that we're, that we're doing and, and the, 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 the rental, which would be the second rental that we own together. Um, and the fifth one that I own in total, uh, that one, again, we're buying it, I think like 57,000, something like that. We're putting in probably about 18,000 in, and in rehab. Uh, so about 75,000 total, and it's going to be worth about one fifteen when we're done and it'll rent for about 900 bucks a month. So, I mean, really, your your goal when you're doing the rentals, um, is between like one hundred to two hundred dollars a door. So for every every door, you know, and they say door because sometimes you're buying like a multifamily housing, like, like a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex, or or even something that's bigger than that, like an apartment building. You want to there, there's a certain per door number that you really want to want to achieve, and and in the market we're in, you know, one hundred to two hundred dollars a door is is pretty favorable. Um, out here in California, if you're buying something that's you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, a hundred dollars really doesn't do much for you. So you have to obviously scale the numbers based on the market you're participating in. So if you were going to talk
0: to somebody who is ready to do their first ever flip, what would you tell them are the steps to get started?
1: The main thing is having a good team that you can trust, uh, because obviously you're going to be putting in a, a meaningful amount of money uh, into there even with the bank financing like we have financing a lot of times where the bank will finance like 75 percent. so you're still putting in 25 percent of the project cost um, so you obviously need a good team that you can trust uh, and most important like i said earlier is don't fall in love with the project the numbers are the numbers and so if if the if the numbers don't work then you have to pass no matter how beautiful the house is have you bought any of those
0: super cheap you know, foreclosures at auction or have you always gone the, on the up and up side of houses and looked for houses that were on the market from our regular seller?
1: Everything we've bought so far has been on the MLS. Uh, we've actually, there's a, there's a term called wholesaling and we've been approached by a couple wholesalers that basically they, they find people that are looking to, to sell their property. Um, that's that Basically, it's not a realtor is involved. And so they're looking to sell their property, and this person essentially kind of acts as a realtor, but just takes like a like a a, a flat fee from uh, from the buyer. And so they a couple of them have approached me. Uh, we haven't found anything yet that w- that um, has been too good of a deal. And so, but so everything so far we bought off the MLS, but we are gonna you know, kind of ramp up some more efforts tr- towards towards buying something directly from somebody because you know there's a lot of times people just need help. Um, you know, they're in a bad situation. They want to get out of the house and, and for whatever reason, it's just not in a good enough condition where a realtor would really want to touch it. Because I mean, some of these houses you buy, I mean, like <laughs> you really don't want to walk in them. You know, yeah. they're in such bad shape and a realtor that's worth his salt, isn't going to want to, to try to market a house that looks like something you see on the, on the episode of hoarders. <laughs>
0: yeah. But those could you know, be the those could be the ones where you get the, the really big returns too. Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, because yeah. again, we can go in there and fix them up and and force the equity. And but anybody else can do that too. It just most people don't either don't have the resources or don't want to don't want to take on the risk. You know, right. or or they they're busy with their life. They're busy with family. They're busy with their job. Uh, busy with their kids, and they don't want to take a take time away from that. And so we provide the service where we we find a house that that needs some uh, TLC and uh, we go in there and fix it up and, and make it a, a really nice ha- home for, for somebody to, uh, to, to make some, uh, some great memories. And our, 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 our kind of our motto is a better community, one home at a time.
0: Oh, that's great. That's, that's, a, that's a really nice way to think about it. Not,
1: not taking, not thinking about it as let's see how
0: many dollars I can grab, but at helping the community and making a few bucks as you do it. That's uh exactly. That's, that's an awesome, uh, awesome philosophy. I like that
1: you want it to be a win-win, you know, for everybody. And definitely, so. you don't want to be a slumlord. You want to give people, oh, no.
0: <laughs> if you're, if you're, if you're having a
1: rental property, you want them to have a nice place to live. And, and yeah, you, you well, want especially the with the, part. with the rental properties, uh, the philosophy is I'd rather make them just a little bit nicer than I have to, because the last thing you want to have on a rental property is vacancy. Right. Well, that's, because that's the when killer. You, if there's, if there's a vacancy, you have all the expenses and none of the income. Right. And my uh, my in laws have a, they have um, done a
0: lot of real estate. That's that's been their career. And They actually have an out of state multi unit um, building that they have, and I know when they got it, they were able to get a better deal on it because it had so many vacancies. And they put in the the time and the work and got a great property manager out there. And now it's totally filled up. So it's um, it's it's a story that any real estate investor can hopefully find as a, yeah. as a, a good real estate investor. Here you find For something sure. and, and increase the vacancy or decrease the vacancies, increase the value
1: and you've earned both equity in your property and some cash flow. So Exactly. That's, that's exactly. Great. So, yeah, so I, I do a lot of the real estate stuff on the side. Um, you know, that obviously that takes up quite a bit of time. Um, like I said earlier, I, I had a baby girl that was born in, in March, and so she's uh, 11 weeks old now, and I have a four-year-old son, and um, so it's great being able to spend time with them. But one of the things that that I also do is, like like you mentioned earlier, is the baldthoughts.com is my website, and it, it really started out initially as my kind of my thoughts on on everything, whether it be finance or or sports or or travel, because mm-hmm. uh, you know I have a lot of different interests that way. But I realized that maybe not everybody wants to the you new know, maybe want, not everybody wants to hear all the different topics, and so I, I basically kind of segmented the sites at, at at some point, and that way I have bald thoughts as more of my travel, uh, bald finance is the personal finance, and then uh, flight to the game is focused on on sporting events and and, and codes to be able to get pre sale tickets for for different events whenever I can, whenever I can get those, and so. You know, really, I've, I've been involved in like on the on the travel hacking side for a long time. I thought that I was sitting on you know sitting in tall cotton, uh having <laughs> uh, the, uh, the the Southwest uh, Chase Southwest card and the uh, American Express the SPG card, and um, had a, I've had the Companion Pass for about uh, eight years now, nine years, and uh, pretty much the entire time my wife and I have been dating and and now married, um, so we traveled all the time. Um, yeah. And it's been fantastic because with the with the Southwest card, you can easily earn the the companion pass. Yes, and um, it's great wherever you fly, your your companion flies for free. You know, now all you have to do is pay the uh, the nine eleven fee. So basically, you know, five or ten bucks yeah, a flight. I
0: think it's five fifty per leg now. Yeah. is how they do yeah. it. And my wife, we have that one too. We actually, for for those of you who have not heard of this deal, there's a really cool trick you can do to get all these Southwest miles all at once, which we'll we'll get more into how these bonuses work in a few minutes. But for this specific deal, the way Southwest works, which is different than a lot of the other airlines, the miles that you earn from the credit card, including the bonus, are qualifying miles towards the companion pass or towards the the premium status. So if you can earn 110,000 miles within a calendar year, for the entire calendar year you complete plus the next year you get a companion pass and it's you designate one person you can't just every flight pick a different friend to go with you can change it like two three times a year so you can change it but it's not um that's not how it's really designed but there are two credit cards you can get at the same time both the personal and the business Southwest card and each come with a 50,000 mile bonus if you spend $2,000 within the first three months. So right there, if you spend $4,000 within three months, you have 104,000 miles. And to get the companion pass, you only need 110,000. They say only, but at that point, it is only because you're 6,000 miles away. And you can do that through credit card spend. And you don't have to spend real dollars to spend those dollars, you can do something that's called manufactured spending. And uh, actually, Lee Lee is an expert in this as well. So, rather than me hog the whole conversation, let's um, let's let's dive <laughs> in. Let's, let's say so. So, Lee, if you were brand new travel hacker, decided this Southwest deal is the one you want to try to get started. You're like, I, I'm into this. Sure. I want 110 thousand miles. So, with Southwest, that. Um, is easily you know, five, six round trip flights, plus you get to bring your companion along. So that's 12 round trip flights. That's that's real money there. We're talking at $200, $300 a flight. You can do the math that that adds up quick. That would be expensive if you just paid for it. But we don't have to pay for it because we're smart travel hackers. So Lee, if you were doing this deal and you wanted to figure out how to spend that last, or let's say the whole, the whole $10,000 you have to spend, what would your strategy be to do that?
1: Well first off it when you put everything on a credit card, whether it be your utilities your auto insurance your home insurance, all these other things cell going phone out bills. to going out to mills yeah cell phone bills all those things realistically those add up to be a, a pretty significant number uh you know when you actually put it on a credit card uh, one of my friends uh, I, I about a year and a half ago I got him into doing the travel hacking and uh, you know he only wanted to do one card at at first, because he was really concerned about hitting a minimum spend of about two thousand dollars, I said, "Just put your, just put all your expenses on there. Put everything you spend, put your gas for your car, anything you, anything you normally spend with cash or your Grocers, debit card. is that's, that's a big one. Exactly. Bartels, you all- if you're if you're a young partier, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or what you do is." You, you pay for the tab and get all the cash from your friends and then you take the cash and pay off your card.
0: I figured that one out early on. I'd go to these dinners with, you know, 10 friends and rather than split the bill, I'd make everyone give me money and I'll put it on my card. All of a sudden, that was 500 bucks.
1: Yeah, because most of your friends, if they're not, you know, in on the the travel hacking or personal finance side, most of them are carrying balances, right? And so they're, the last thing they want to do is put more money onto their credit card. So that's why they're using cash a lot of times. And so, you know, if you're smart, you're paying off your credit card every month. And so you're like, hey, just give me the cash. You know that you're going to be uh, responsible enough to pay off the balance. And everything works out great because you're getting all the points, not only for your meal, but everybody else's meal. And so it works out pretty fantastic. But realistically, like my friend, you know, he he was really concerned about being able to hit that minimum spend. And after about a month, he's like, oh, my God, I've almost... I, will, I will almost hit the entire minimum spend and I still have two more months to go. I said, see, that's what I was telling you. Maybe you need to do two cards uh, or even three. And so, um, but realistically it is pretty easy even without having to do manufactured spend to be able to hit the minimum uh, minimum spending on one or two cards over the course of three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, <laughs> the one that I've run into trouble with, when I, I've
0: done a lot of manufactured spending because I've you know, I think my record was five credit cards in a day, four credit cards in a day. <laughs> uh, but I um, one card I got was the American Airlines Executive card. They have oh, yeah. a one point a hundred thousand mile bonus. But if I remember I think it was ten thousand dollars in three months you had to spend. Yeah. And I got one card for myself and one for my wife. So all of a sudden we had to spend twenty thousand dollars in three months. That one was a little bit trickier. <laughs> we had yeah. to put some some legwork in on that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when you do multiple cards like that, or you do these cards with these really high minimum spend limits, at that point, then the manufacturer spending really uh, is very be- beneficial for you. And so, uh, like Eric was talking about, what you do is you, you go to, like, say, your, um, your ga- like gas stations, uh, sometimes we'll have them, uh, grocery stores, things like that, uh, or even the mall, you know, like, um, like uh, there's a mall near me that the Brea mall that where they, they have the, the gift cards for sale as well. And you go up there with your credit card, uh, you buy the gift cards. Um, unfortunately uh, they've been raising the fees because I think that they've been having too many travel hackers buy the gift cards. <laughs> so it, it used to be 395 and now it's uh, 595. So it, you are, so you are spending about a, a little bit over 1%, uh, you know, of the, of the cost of the, of the card. But you know, if you're, if you're doing it towards a a big bonus like that, it's definitely worthwhile. So, um, so you're spending a little bit of money on on the, on the transaction fees. And then what you do is you take your, your, your gift cards and, uh, there's a product that's free. It's called the American express bluebird account. And you can take, um, you can take your, your gift cards that you buy, uh, that are like the visa gift cards from a certain company. You take them and you go to Walmart and you basically can load, uh, the gift cards, um, Onto your uh, American Express Bluebird card at the uh, at the financial counter, and you can do that. I, I think it's now only a thousand dollars a day. Sometimes you can do up to like twenty five hundred uh, in a day. Actually, just but, a little tidbit for people who don't have, or if you
0: have a Walmart near you or a neighborhood market, it's another Walmart store, um, you can. They often have that financial counter that Lee was just mentioning. If they don't, because not all stores do, some have a finance kiosk that is the easiest place to do the unload onto the bluebird card because it has all the same functions and features, but you don't have to explain to someone what you're doing, which uh, <laughs> a lot of people are like, what do you mean you want to put $200 onto this card five times? Um, you know, that some yeah. of that stuff seems kind of funky. So you can do it yourself. If they don't have that, which I've run into any cashier at a Walmart can do it. Um, they won't all know how, but sometimes you, uh, yeah, you know, they they all have the ability at every Walmart register.
1: Exactly. But the, the most important thing is don't tell them that you're using a gift card. Tell them it's a debit card because the, those gift cards that you buy are effectively a debit card. Mm-hmm. And if you tell them it's a gift card, sometimes, you know, the kind of the, you know, the alarms go off in, in their head and going, hey, wait a minute. Maybe this guy's trying to do something weird. And by by law,
0: all Visa and MasterCard gift cards that they, they can't just be a store card. You can't you get like an American Eagle card and do this because um, you can only spend it there. But the MasterCard and Visa debit card gift cards by law have to be pin numberable. That's not a word. I made it up. <laughs> <You> have, <laughs> they have to be pin eligible. So you yeah. could potentially you know, go to an ATM and type your pin number, get some cash out, though there's usually fees and sometimes there's locks on that. But because of how the debit card system works, you, um, you can use the PIN number just like you would in an ATM to, or, or when you use your debit card to buy gas or groceries, whatever you choose to buy, which now you just heard you don't do that. Use the credit card to get the miles as long as you won't carry a balance and you're responsible because that totally washes out the value of the free miles. If you're spending, you know, $50 a month on interest, but. Um, you can take those. You, know, you use that debit card PIN number. So, you, so just like Lee said, you tell them it's a debit card. You swipe it, but you do it in incremental dollars, knowing the balance on the cards. So you don't. You obviously you can't overdraft a card. It would just decline it. Uh, exactly.
1: And then sometimes, like you said, sometimes not everybody has a Walmart nearby. There are certain places like a grocery store or like the small mom and pop uh, liquor stores. They will actually use the 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 gift cards. And you can buy money orders with them. I've done that.
0: Um, yeah, my la- my most recent travel ha- manufactured spend. We did that, and our local chain grocery store let us do that, and it was no problem. They were very nice about it. And doing it with the um, doing doing it there, the money order cost I think was a dollar per five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had to do a couple of them. It cost two three bucks to unload them all, and um, we were good to go.
1: Exactly. So, it was great. so, so I mean. I, I, I do when I get, when I do the manufacturer spend because the Bluebird card will only allow you to do a maximum of $5,000 uh, per card. So per when months. I do my when, yeah per month, sorry. <laughs> and whenever you whenever I do my runs, I show up with $3,000 worth of gift cards. I have a thousand for my wife, a thousand for my card and then a thousand for a money order. So I just I hit up all three uh, every time I go. So that way it makes it a little bit more worth my time than just showing up for for one thousand dollars. So can you, can you open uh, a card under your son's and daughter's name? Not, not credit card. Cause I've heard of people doing that as fraudulent fraudulently. Yeah. You no. can open
0: bluebird cards for them.
1: <laughs> no, the bluebird card, uh, you have to be 18. Okay. I believe uh, to do that, but you can, you know, your aunts, your uncles, your, your mother-in-law, you know, yeah. your parents, any of those types of things. Um, they're obviously easy to do um, obviously since you're putting your money on that card don't give them access to it right because yeah. uh, obviously some people like to spend your money and you don't want that to happen but um, you know if they're getting some of the benefits of maybe you're planning a trip and you're gonna use your miles to, to take you and the family and like you know I've taken my mother-in-law on some trips um, if if they're gonna receive some of the benefits you know hey this is their contribution to helping you uh, be able to get enough miles and points to be able to book that really nice trip uh, my friend who first taught me about travel hacking and how it all works,
0: he I, there used to be a trick that, that Amazon shut it down. That you could use Amazon payments to send yep. $1,000 between two people each way using a credit card for free each month. And he had an Amazon account under his name, his wife's name, his kids' names, his both of his parents' names, I think his sister's name and some of her his <laughs> wife's family. He had like eight, nine, ten accounts. So and because you could do 2000 dollars essentially per pair, and yep. with a web of eight accounts, he was making like twenty, thirty thousand miles a month on that, and he took his whole family to Israel first class.
1: Fantastic, uh, that was pretty sweet.
0: So, um, so if you're interested in all this, before we go, we had this idea before we got on to do the first ever live podcast without much planning. Aporama plan. So, what an Aporama is, I mentioned one time I got like four or five credit cards in a day. It, there's a trick with this travel hacking credit card stuff. If that's the route you want to go to, to get all the miles, which is what I've done and what Lee's done and many other people. Um, you know, we, we can't tell everybody in the world about it because then everyone's on to it and they'll shut it all down. So, you know, be judicious. I guess I'm sharing it on a podcast so a few people hear it. <laughs> but I hope, I hope all my, uh, all the listeners really do, um, value this and enjoy this and, and get some good value from it. So there's the way credit reporting works. The banks that you get credit cards from report to the big credit bureaus. There's three of them. Usually once a day, at the end of the day, they do a big batch. So they'll say, these are all of the applications we had today. And that's considered a hard hit on your credit score So that or credit report. So when you go on your credit report, other lenders will say, oh, they just applied for a loan from Chase. You know, they don't know what it is, but if it's a credit card, you know, it'll show you know application from Chase. That's what they'll see. Um, you can go on your own credit report and see that. All of your applications in the last two years, you'll see that. So uh, if you do you know, one a day by the third or fourth day, the banks will look at your credit report and say, Oh, well, you've just applied for three credit cards in the last three days. Why did you do that? Why should we give you a credit card? That's a, a risky activity. So what people do is they apply for all of the credit cards in one day before it hits the system. Not that you're doing anything bad. You know, this is, this is legal. Some people might say it's uh, gaming the system, but it's within the rules and confines of the system. So you're not breaking any laws or doing anything wrong. But if you apply for them all, and get a plot approved on the same day they won't see all the other applications and as long as you're not going to go try to get a new mortgage in the next um, you know six months to a year it won't look funky it won't hurt you in any way it lowers your lowers your credit score a tiny bit but not um, not materially having all these hits happen and all the new accounts so I have been in in the uh, in the market for a new RAM. I have not done one and it's been a while. My m- mileage balances are running a little low after going to Spain. And I think I have six trips right now. I actually booked one today to Chicago. Um, so so my miles are running low. Let's... Lee, what would you do if you were me today? Um, even though I haven't told you what credit cards I've already have or have had. How would you approach this today if you wanted to do a big Aparama and get tons of miles?
1: Well, the number one thing before you know, you, you start as you want to know where you want to go, like what's your goal with, with the travel, you know, and, and some people, some people want luxurious travel. Some people want just the economy. They just want to be able to go to as many places as possible. So, so kind of knowing how you like to travel and where you want to go uh, are two different uh, questions that we, we really need to kind of understand. Um, personally, I, you know, I, I do a lot of domestic travel. So Southwest is fantastic for me, especially cause with a companion pass. Um, but you know, every so often, I like to do a, a really nice international trip and whenever possible, do do it in business class. And uh, so, what, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, um, actually, my original plan for the Spain trip was to
0: go business class. But we, uh, we, we booked it a little too late and all those seats were already taken. So, we had to go coach. But let's say I wanted to do a Europe trip business class from Portland, where I live. Where we don't have a big hub, which is really sad. We have an Alaska hub, pretty small.
1: Sure, sure. So um, the you know whether you're from Portland or or anywhere else with American Airlines, they're they're probably one of my favorite airlines to to use for international trips because they have uh, you know really good availability for their they call it the Milesaver, which is their their discounted award flights. So like, if you want to go to Europe, and uh, I did this a few years ago with uh, it was me, my son, my, my wife, and, and my mother-in-law, we, we went uh, just at the tail end of the off-peak. So it was at the end of April. And uh, the, the, the American Airlines off-peak is, for Europe is from October 15th through May 15th. So it's a really big window uh, for those off-peak awards. And uh, essentially, everything is half price. Uh, like A normal one-way ticket is 40,000 miles. During the off-peak, it's only twenty. Same thing with the business class; it's normally a hundred thousand miles. You can get it uh, for fifty thousand miles, and so fifty thousand miles is is definitely easily achievable through a number of the different credit cards from um, from Citibank on the American Airlines side. And so that's one of the ways I would I would go to earn the miles is. There's, a, there's actually kind of a handful of, of cards also, which really helps the, if you're trying to build your mileage balance. Let's say you want to be able to take you and your spouse and maybe children or, or a, a mother-in-law, something like that. Um, there's a, there's a, an American, American Express version from Citibank. There's a, a MasterCard version. And then there's the, the card we were talking about earlier, Eric, which is the, um, the Executive Platinum version. And so each one of those uh, generally will offer about 50,000 miles. I'm not sure right now if they're if they are running the promotion where you can get you can get fifty thousand miles sometimes they'll they'll bump it down to thirty thousand so you may want to look uh you know on on the website to see if there if there are any offers for uh for fifty thousand miles on the on the app
0: yeah so uh, if you are a new travel hacker um so at least like Lee just said sometimes they're lower sometimes they're better so look you, there's a bunch of blogs all about travel hacking um so you, you can easily. Go out there and find what historically has been available and what's available today. And if you see a big difference negatively today from what has been, you might want to be patient. Wait, because some of those deals come back. Sometimes they're annually or quarterly. Sometimes, um, you know, if you jump on and the deal's really high, like there was just a deal, all of the ink cards from Chase were doing sixty thousand mile bonuses instead of the regular
1: fifty. It's a perfect time to jump on and try it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so and what, so, oh, so, yeah, so if, it, so if you get one of the, one of the, um, the, the Citibank American airlines, whether it's the MasterCard or, or Visa version, those generally will offer, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50,000 miles and they'll waive the, the annual fee the first year. That's generally the, the, the offer that's available. The, the executive platinum one, uh, which has a, a lot of really nice perks, um, that one has a, a really hefty fee of four hundred fifty dollars. Yeah. Uh, but the good thing I paid is that <laughs> well, the only one is, year. The good thing is that you can actually do some things to offset that four hundred fifty dollars. Which what I did is I bought uh, I went on I went online or even called and I bought gift cards in the fifty dollar increments from American Airlines, and then I call up and use that as like, you know, a quote unquote bag fee or you don't, a lot of times you don't have to tell me, just call them up and say, Hey, you know, I have a fee on my, on my account from American Airlines. Would you mind waiving it? And cause with that executive platinum card, you can actually get uh $250 per calendar year waived. Yeah, and state, they call them statement credits. Yes. So, um, so that's a way to offset that $450, uh, on that card. Great. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So there, so there you, you guys have, uh, that's one strategy all Those American cards, that's awesome. We're, we're running low on time. So before we go, one last question. If you had to only have one travel hacking credit card and you had to get rid of all of your others and you could only have one to keep
1: forever, what would it be? I'm a big fan of Southwest, so I would keep that one. Um, the, the reason for it is because I save so much money on all the flights by having the, the companion pass. Like for example, uh, at the end of this month, we're going to Puerto Rico uh, for a week. Uh, my wife is going to fly for free. Uh, we're going to Isla Mujeres, like uh, in Cancun, in um, a Labor Day weekend. So my wife will be able to fly for free. Uh, later that month, I'm going to switch, and actually, my my partner is going to be my companion, and we're going to fly to Boston on our way to uh, to Dublin and London. So that flight will be for free. And then um, I don't know. We're probably going to go to Aruba or, or any of the other kind of new international destinations that the Southwest is offering. So. Uh, after they bought AirTran, uh, their international uh, offerings um, went from non-existent to now you have probably 10 to 12 different places. You get around Mexico, the Caribbean and expanding. It's it's great. Exactly. So that, that, that's the card I would keep. And that's the card I've actually had for probably 12 years. Um, There's a lot of other value with a lot of other ones. um, But that's the one that's near and dear to my heart. And my, my favorite, which was I think my second card I got for the
0: purpose of miles is the uh, Sapphire preferred from chase. That one, you get um, double miles at restaurants, double miles on bars included in restaurants, which at the time I got this card was, was a lot of miles. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My my bar spend has gone way down, uh, but, but there was a point it was, it was, it was a a lot of miles. Um, There's a lot of bonus opportunities there and um, there's transfer partners. So it's cool with that. If you get a you know, hundred thousand miles there, you can transfer instantly to Southwest, which I I do sometimes. United, um, there's a whole list of airlines and hotels that you can use those miles for. So f- for me, that one's been kind of my my favorite and longest uh, I've had. Nice, it's, it's nice. worked great for me. So so um so thank you so much for being on. This has been totally interesting. I've I've loved hearing all the real estate stuff. Uh, if people want to know
1: more about you, they want to connect with you, they want to find you. Where should they go? I'm uh, I'm all over social media. You know, I have the Facebook account, Twitter account, Instagram, et cetera, uh, under BaldThoughts.com. BaldThoughts.com uh, is the website and BaldThoughts is the, the the handle on Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram. And uh, for anybody that, you know, kind of has some questions as far as what cards to get or, or how to get places, things like that. I do offer a, a free consultation for, for people as far as helping them try to figure out which card uh, to get that's going to help them uh, achieve their, their travel goals. So, so there's a link on my website uh, for that if, if somebody wants to to reach out to me there. Great. So, so if you if you missed that site when we mentioned it earlier, that's baldthoughts.com
0: and uh and Lee Huffman has been been our guest. He has done he's been totally interesting and fascinating. We could go and talk for hours and hours, but it's uh, it's getting late and um we we have to call it a night so so thank you again so much this has been fun Here, here's a, a virtual cheers through through the internet webs of uh, of us clinking our beers um thank you for for speaking with everyone thank you listeners for making it this far and uh if you have any questions for lee um if, if you can't find that link or you're having trouble with the spellings i will link to him from the show notes for this episode so you'll be able to find him that way and until we speak next time stay profitable Thanks for listening to the Personal
1: Profitability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.